Hello and welcome to the latest Lancet podcast. I'm Richard Lane and it's Thursday, August the 18th. This week we're discussing atrial fibrillation, specifically in relation to stroke. And in this week's podcast, we're crossing over to Sydney, Australia. So let's hear from our guest interviewee introducing himself. Hi, I'm Ben Friedman. I'm a professor of cardiology at the University of Sydney. I work at the Heart Research Institute at the Charles Perkins Centre at the University. Dr. Ben Friedman, many thanks indeed for talking to The Lancet. You're the author of Paper One in a three-part clinical series looking at atrial fibrillation. Very specifically, uh, your paper is probably the the most detailed, the broadest of of the three papers, because you're looking very much at atrial fibrillation in relation to stroke prevention. Can you just outline how important it is just getting this concept right, this relationship between stroke and atrial fibrillation? Because that's at the heart of of your review, isn't it? That's correct. Well, I mean, first of all, atrial fibrillation is exceedingly common as an arrhythmia. So it's sort of something that we all have to think about, even for ourselves. I think the stats are something like if you reach the age of 40, one in four people um, will develop atrial fibrillation in their lifetime. So this is not a rare event. Then if we look at stroke and ischemic stroke as the adverse outcome, one third of ischemic stroke is related to atrial fibrillation. I think most people don't realize it's that high. What we try to make a point of is that most of that is preventable. If we look at that 33% of ischemic stroke that's related to atrial fibrillation, in 9% it was unknown at the time of the stroke and in 24% the atrial fibrillation was known at the time of the stroke or before the stroke. But in that 24%, only 4% were on anticoagulant in the largest stroke registry, the Swedish Stroke Registry, published recently. And 20% were not on anticoagulant. So in that 20% of all ischemic stroke, you could potentially have prevented it if the people were on anticoagulant adequately treated. A half of them were on aspirin, which is not effective. So again, that's a low-hanging fruit for me to treat to try and prevent stroke. And the other 9% was unknown at the time of atrial fibrillation. To prevent those strokes, one would need to detect atrial fibrillation before stroke. And that's where we believe that screening is something we should consider as a way of looking for atrial fibrillation that's just out there in the community, in people over the age of 65. If you just do a single screen, 1.5% have it. If we could find these people and treat it, we could really make inroads into ischemic stroke. So really, that's the point of the article. We've got a few bits of low-hanging fruit with ischemic stroke, which are related to atrial fibrillation. Just getting a little bit more detail, tell us about the biology. I think it's interesting, and of course, it's very relevant to our understanding of the processes at play here. Tell us about the biology underlying atrial fibrillation and how that can lead to stroke. Well, the conventional wisdom, particularly for persistent or permanent atrial fibrillation is that you get stasis in the left atrium which predisposes to clotting. When you get clots formed in the left atrium, particularly the left atrial appendage, you will get a a clot which breaks off potentially goes to the cerebral arteries and away you go with a stroke. But in fact, this is not completely the full story. First of all, you need to have additional stroke risk factors on top of atrial fibrillation for you to be at increased risk of stroke. So atrial fibrillation alone is not up enough. Then if you look at people who have a stroke while wearing a device, 
not to say wearing, but actually an implanted device like a pacemaker, you can tell whether they've had any atrial fibrillation just prior to the stroke. And in many cases, atrial fibrillation actually is not present just before the stroke. In a few, there is a close temporal relationship. But in fact, it's not always so. And you can have brief atrial fibrillation a long time before or even after the stroke. The feeling is now is that this may be a marker, a risk marker, particularly with paroxysmal atrial fibrillation of atrial cardiopathy. And the atrial cardiopathy is what leads to the thromboembolism. So I think we have to look at, at a biological level, atrial fibrillation being both a risk factor and a risk marker of an atrial myopathy, which if it's present in concert with other risk factors, which may lead to endothelial dysfunction and clot forming in the endothelium, will lead to atrial clot and cardioembolism, which produces stroke. You've already mentioned aspirin. So let's talk about this very important issue, which is at the heart of the debate, I suppose, of what we're saying in this series. And, and this is this understanding often misperception about the role for oral anti clotting agents, aspirin and others. Tell us about how they feature into the picture here. I think there's a widespread misapprehension or a misperception of aspirin's efficacy and safety in atrial fibrillation, probably because of its efficacy in treatment of myocardial infarction and coronary disease. And it has been used. But in fact, if you look at it, and the more we look at it, the more we realize aspirin is minimally effective, if effective at all. And it's also not particularly safe. And when you compare it in trials to people in whom anticoagulant was thought contraindicated, aspirin is not really very safe and certainly not effective compared to, for instance, a novel anticoagulant, a NOAC. So one of the things we look at in registries is to find out how many people who should be on an anticoagulant actually on aspirin. And it's really very high, something like 20 or 30% of people with atrial fibrillation who should be on an anticoagulant are actually being treated with aspirin, which is ineffective. And aspirin is gradually being written out of guidelines. So I think it's quite important for us to know that many of the strokes that occur in known atrial fibrillation occur in people who are on aspirin. And these strokes could have been prevented if we replaced aspirin by an effective drug, which is an oral anticoagulant. I guess it's confusing, speaking as a non-expert, isn't it? Because there are so many other reasons for people's perception that aspirin and aspirin is beneficial, isn't it? And, and in terms of stroke prevention, people like Peter Rothwell will say, well, yeah, take an aspirin a day to prevent stroke. So there's a slightly counterintuitive thing there concerning, obviously, atrial fibrillation-related stroke. Aspirin is, is not indicated. That's right. When you have clots that are coming from the atrium, they may well be different to the large vessel clots that you may prevent with aspirin. In the studies, I think they were very biased by one particular study which had methodological flaws, the SPAF1 study. When we've re-looked really at it and in more recent registries, aspirin just isn't effective and it's not really safe. And that's particularly so in the elderly. So they face a, a dilemma. They have more bleeding with anticoagulants, the elderly, but a much higher stroke risk. And their net clinical benefit is much higher with anticoagulant, whereas aspirin is not only not effective, but it's not safe, particularly in the elderly. So I think this misperception is at the heart of a lot of undertreatment of atrial fibrillation. And atrial fibrillation is really not to be treated with aspirin. I think that's one of the messages we try to give. You've already touched on it. There seems to be, in terms of 
clinical management. There's a balancing act, I guess, and, and certainly in terms of thinking between, on the one hand, the need for effective thromboprophylaxis, but on the other hand, the concern about increased bleeding risk. That is true, and there's always a clinical dilemma. And when we have a patient in front of us, we're always giving them the choice and telling them what the balance of risk is. As physicians, we often overestimate the bleeding risk and underestimate the stroke risk. Part of this is due to the fact that we see the, the bleeds that we cause, but we don't actually see the strokes we prevent. So we're much more sensitized to bleeding and falls risk. But if you look at the net clinical benefit in almost all categories, it's way balanced in favor of thromboprophylaxis with an effective drug, which is an oral anticoagulant. I think, again, there is some misperception about the, the balance. Some of the scores, for instance, of bleeding risk we feel should not be used to not anticoagulate, but only to look for potentially reversible causes like GI bleeding or other drugs that people are taking to be corrected rather than as a reason to not medicate people with oral anticoagulant. And it's physician choice that's the primary reason for not giving it. One of the other reasons why physicians don't give anticoagulant is the misperception that paroxysmal atrial fibrillation is low risk if you don't have it at the time you don't need to be taking an anticoagulant. That's completely incorrect. And that is a, a huge factor for not prescribing anticoagulant, present in many, many different surveys. Lifestyle, of course, we have to talk about this because there are modifiable risk factors, aren't there, concerning stroke and, and atrial fibrillation. Tell, tell us about how lifestyle and, and, and public health can, can play a role here. Well, obviously, risk factors like hypertension and diabetes, which are important for stroke in general and large vessel disease and lacuna strokes, are important risk factors for the development of atrial fibrillation. If we look at atrial fibrillation itself, there's some really interesting new data on people who are overweight and not having much physical activity, being given really strict diets and physical activity prescriptions, losing 10 kilos, kilograms in weight, and um, even when they were on the waiting list for ablation, they suddenly regress and, uh, and don't have the need for it. It stands to reason that people who can intervene in lifestyle factors like this would make a difference to their prognosis. There haven't been lifestyle trials, though, for atrial fibrillation, stroke risk and other risks, except for a nurse-led study in the Netherlands where a total package, including physical activity and weight loss and an increased prescription led by a nurse in a clinic and in a hospital reduced hospitalization and death and increased the rate of oral anticoagulant use. But there really is not much yet written about it and not much looking at it. And I don't think these will obviate the need for oral anticoagulant. But I can't help but believe that if we were successful in reducing blood pressure, in reducing people's weight, in increasing physical activity, that we would make an impact on atrial fibrillation, both in terms of primary prevention of atrial fibrillation and in terms of preventing some of the sequelae of atrial fibrillation, including stroke. And turning to the future, I guess the key thing you're looking for here and the this, this series is, is calling for, obviously, is better awareness, better understanding, dispelling some of these myths concerning management and use of anticoagulants, etc. But in broader terms, you're calling for atrial fibrillation and stroke risk to be viewed almost like coronary artery disease in terms of how we perceive it. How are we going to shift 
thinking and how long would it take to to really shift thinking on on a, on a large scale so that we're we've got much better awareness among patients but obviously among physicians particularly well i think we've got a long way to go first of all when you talk to the man in the street about atrial fibrillation most people have never heard of it yet they do know about stroke and they do know about heart attacks so it's relatively unknown in the population secondly even in people with atrial fibrillation Half of the people who have it don't know they've got it or have no idea what it is or deny or don't know that they've got an increased stroke risk. So on that basis, sort of more recognition of what's going on will be enormously helpful. So I think coronary artery disease, heart attacks, strokes, well known, but the role of atrial fibrillation all this is really underdone. Another thing, of course, is to, to shift to trying to prevent atrial fibrillation, many of the risk factors that determine onset of atrial fibrillation are very similar to those that are associated with vascular disease. So if we're successful in our primary prevention of vascular disease, we should reduce atrial fibrillation as well. But I think we're a little further down the track about that. Certainly by increasing recognition of the role in, of atrial fibrillation in stroke, then we may start to think a little bit more seriously about things that lead to atrial fibrillation, about stopping it progressing, and lifestyle factors would be important there. So again, that will take a little bit of time for this to this sort of realization and this type of approach to atrial fibrillation to occur. And in the meantime, I think we need to make sure that people realize that if we only do what we know, and that is um, treat people who've got known atrial fibrillation with effective drugs instead of ineffective drugs. And if we start to think about looking for atrial fibrillation as a risk factor as well as a risk marker for stroke, then we might discover people with unknown atrial fibrillation or undiagnosed atrial fibrillation, which if we find it before the stroke and treat it adequately, may prevent further strokes. So I think we've still got a long way to go and part of it is just realising that it's an important factor in stroke. It's not just a, an occasional factor and this will increase as the population ages. And a final, final point, clinical guidelines, are they up to date? Do they need rewriting? The clinical guidelines as we speak, certainly for Europe, the European Atrial Fibrillation Guidelines are just about to be re-released with an update and that will be in another week and a half. So I'll be interested to see what they say. The American guidelines are also being looked at. The American College of Chest Physician guidelines are being reviewed as well. So that there's quite a lot of activity going on. So I think we will see some movement there, but we just have to wait and see and watch the space. But atrial fibrillation probably needs to come a little bit higher up in, as a preventive in neurological guidelines. I think the neurology community is more fixated on looking at what happens after stroke rather than trying to prevent it. It's been really interesting talking to you. Thank you for your time and let's hope we can make some progress in this area. But in the meantime, Dr. Ben Friedman on the line from the University of Sydney in Australia. Many thanks indeed for talking to The Lancet. Thank you very much.